Okay, as I know, I'm supposed to start only at five after, but I'm too impatient, so I'm going to start now. Now, the last time I talked about Nietzsche's central project as being concerned with a fear of decadence or lack of vitality and an attempt to understand that situation and through understanding it to come to deal with it. And now one of the ways and one of the ways in which he thinks you can understand that is to think in general about Western morality and to think about whether most, how Western morality might or might not be connected with uh, decadence and vitality. That's why the question is, what's the value of morality? Now, once he starts thinking about the question about European morality, it's very important to see that he takes a completely different approach to Western morality from the approach that many of his 19th century um, um, colleagues would have taken. Namely, there's a general tendency in philosophy, and there was a particularly strong tendency in 19th century philosophy, to think of societies as relatively coherent ensembles. That is, the society was held together, it was coherent, all the parts fitted together, and in particular, each society had a single coherent morality. So it was natural to think about Christianity as a single unitary form of morality and to think of that morality in one or another of its versions as characteristic of a particular period. So as you know, when I was growing up there were books with titles like The Elizabethan Worldview. So the assumption was the Elizabethan time in Britain was a particular historical time, and it had associated with it a very clear and coherent way of thinking about the world. Now, philosophers tended to put an emphasis on the coherence of this. The, 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 the fact that the parts of the worldview fit together, and that means the parts of the morality fit together. Now, this assumption is not dead, because if you think of the way in which a lot of contemporary uh, political philosophers talk about liberalism or talk about uh, intuitions about justice, the assumption is they form a coherent whole. It all fits together. We all have coherent intuitions about the world, particularly coherent moral intuitions about the world. Now Nietzsche begins by failing to make that assumption. That is, he says, uh, don't make the assumption that at every moment a society is a single unitary whole, and that single unitary whole is associated with a single potentially coherent form of moralization. It isn't the case that there's a particular kind of 19th century Zittlichkeit, he calls it, 19th century morality that is coherent. Rather, think about the possibility that what we call a morality, such as Victorian morality, is not a unity, but it is a collection of disparate elements that are put together. When, and those disparate elements not only don't necessarily fit together, they are 
probably in tension with each other. So he starts from the assumption that the natural idea that you'd have if you were a Rawlsian or something, you start with the, the intuitive views we have, and you reflect on them, and then you'll get something coherent, is itself an incoherent way to proceed, because we might not have any final coherent views that you can come to. It might rather be a more important part of our, our way of thinking of the world, that our morality is composed of different, relatively internally coherent parts, but these different relatively coherent parts are in contrast with each other. So in the Victorian period, there might be certain kinds of views that came from Christianity, and they were more or less coherent. Then you might have certain views that came from utilitarianism, and they were more or less coherent. But the Christian views and the utilitarian views were not coherent with each other, they were alternatives that were struggling with each other. Then you might have some feudal remnants. You might have concepts of honor and other sorts of concepts that came from previous social formations and still played a certain kind of role. So the first thing he says is don't start with the assumption that uh, a morality will be coherent and consistent. It's better, for whatever reason, to start from the opposite assumption. Look at it as a, as a number of different uh, components that are in tension with each other. This brings it, of course, very close to Marx's view, uh, who also emphasized, I mean, liberalism, of course, is a view that says, really, it's all coherent in the final analysis. You can always make it coherent. And both Nietzsche and Marx are part of a reaction against that. They're both part of the idea that society is antagonistic. That's a more basic fact about it than that it's consent-based. Consent it's antagonistic. It's really antagonistic. And its worldview, and in particular its morality, will not necessarily be a single seamless whole. It'll have parts. He says this, if you want to look at it, uh, most clearly, in Beyond Good and Evil, section 215, you know he has these sections. In 215 he says, people have thought that morality was, they thought of morality on the following model. Morality is the sun, and we're on the earth, and so the sun beats down on the earth and makes and illuminates certain things. Certain things are light and some things are dark. But he says, but suppose the earth didn't go around the sun. Suppose there were a variety of stars. And there were a variety of stars. And the earth circled around these stars in an irregular way. So that at any point, the particular configuration of light and darkness we had was a configuration of light and darkness that was the result of the contingent relative positions of these different stars in the world. That's what morality is like. Therefore, morality is not a single unitary thing. And he's going to say it, it's something which has a history. And you're only going to understand it if you understand that history. Or rather, he says he thinks two different things. He thinks, one, the, the, the place you start from is plurality. However, it doesn't follow from that that all the parts are on the same level. So there might be a variety of different ethical components or partial views or ethical fragments that constitute our lives. But 
Nevertheless, at one point, someone of those might have hegemony. So in the 19th century, it might be the case that there are Christian components and utilitarian components and liberal components and feudal components, and they're all there somewhere. And if you really want to understand the way the people in society actually morally act and judge, you have to see all of those things. But nevertheless, the feudal components are still remnants in some sense, and the dominant morality is a morality that is associated with, and then whatever that will be, will be something you'll have to analyze. So the whole thing is not a single unitary thing. It's a momentary result of, it's, it, any analysis is a snapshot. It's a historical snapshot in which you see how the components are related to each other. You see how they're in tension with each other. You see how they've developed. But you also see which ones are stronger and which ones are weaker. So you might, in one sense, say 19th century morality is Christian. That's not a, that's not a stupid thing to say. It's not, that's not a uh, that's, not a, not, that's not something to say that's completely off the point, provided you understand it. Namely, you understand it as saying, in the 19th century, there are all these components. They're feudal things. Feudal, as you know, feudal conceptions of honor are completely incompatible with Christian conceptions, right? Christianity begins when it says about glory and the Roman Empire that the glory, and the, the glory of the Roman Empire is actually a form of sin. So all these feudal conceptions of honor uh, and privilege, et cetera, are actually sinful from the point of Christianity. So you've got these incompatible things, but one of them, nevertheless, you can see, exercises a certain kind of hegemony over the rest of them. So you can say it is basically a kind of Christian morality that has dominance, although its dominance isn't a dominance which means that there's a single unitary structure which is completely coherent. It's rather a dominance that it exercises over a mix of a lot of different moral conceptions which have the position they have by virtue of their historical origin and the actual struggles that have taken place. So feudalism is still there. Uh, after all, we still have a queen. Uh, so the feudalism is there, but it has a different status uh, in the 21st century than it had in the 17th century. Uh, and morally, uh, you could do the same sort of thing. You can say one is dominant over this. OK. Then he says, and so now if we have that as our background and we look at contemporary uh, uh, morality, you can say, you can make a certain observation. And he says, the most important observation you can make about contemporary, that is 19th century um, morality, is to observe that what is one of the central concepts in that morality, namely the concept of the good, pretends to be unitary. It presents itself as if it's a single well-defined concept, the good, but yet, if you look at it, and particularly if you look at it through the lens of historical philology, you'll see that the good cannot be a unitary and single concept. You can't analyze society just by taking the concept of good, kind of fill up a foot. We take the notion of good, and then we analyze the concept of good. And the reason you can't do that is because the concept of good has not one, 
but two completely different opposites. So the idea is a concept is partly defined by the concepts against which it's defined. You, you, define, a, a, you define cat relative to dog, but you can also define cat relative to lion, right? So one concept of cat is it's a cat, that is, it's a member of the cat family rather than a deer. But another way of using the term is it's a cat as opposed to a lion. So when you have a concept that has, so a unitary concept, he, he assumes, has one unitary opposite. If, if it's a coherent single unitary concept, there'll just be one opposite to it. So if you observe that a concept has two different opposites, your first assumption should be that that concept is not as unitary as it presents itself to be. And then he says, and look, good has two different opposites. It has bad, good or bad, and it has evil, good and evil. And so the fact that this central concept has two completely different opposites, not everything that's bad is evil, uh, so from the fact that it has two different opposites means that the concept of good, as is used in the 19th century, is not as unambiguous as it presents itself to be. It's rather an internally differentiated concept which vacillates unclearly back and forth between two different concepts. So what he says is the beginning of wisdom about the 19th century is the history of philology. And he says, now, how, what are we to do with this observation, this observation that good isn't univocal, it's got two opposite, it's got two opposite uh, terms. He says you can only explain that by looking at the historical context through which good as opposed to bad and good as opposed to evil arose. And if you look at that, you'll see that this tells you something about the way in which in antagonistic societies, different strands of moral thinking emerge. And those different strands then oppose one another and struggle for domination with one another, and sometimes they win and sometimes they lose, and the present is a result of that kind of struggle. Okay, so now how does he actually do that? So, so to understand this, so to understand Western morality, as he says in the 19th century, you have to understand the history of morality. And now what kind of history is this going to be? Now, now comes the big, another big jump. It's really important to see that Nietzsche belongs with, uh, in a certain line of development, another certain line of development in the 19th century, namely a development which put an emphasis on the limitations of what you might think of as enlightenment thought, the limitations of analysis, the limitations of, uh, of definition and thought that, in fact, one should try to rehabilitate what he called mythical forms of thinking. That is, it's really important to see that in the late 18th century, you have what 
people in the so people in the 19th century had a certain view about what happened in the 18th century. They thought in the 18th century there was this Enlightenment project, and the Enlightenment project was basically Descartes and Kant. That is the idea that to to understand the world is to specify things about the human world in as clear and well-defined a way as possible to get really clear concepts, to take those concepts and to use those concepts completely to analyze everything that's uh, around in the human world. And only if you do that can you actually get, be, get, get a beginning of something. Now, people in the 19th century, essentially, the ones I'm interested in at least, uh, think that that project shows itself to fail. And they try to supplement it, or not to supplement it, they try, they try two different paths of getting out of what they take to be the impasse of that. So if you take that form of conceptualization that you find in Descartes and in Kant, they think you're never going to understand lots of human phenomena. They simply don't allow themselves to be analyzed in, in that kind of way. You can't get well-defined concepts uh, that are like uh, platonically organized concepts that will allow you to understand human society, human morality, and other things. You can't get that. It just doesn't work. So what do you do in that situation? Well, at the same time, at the beginning of the 19th century, people begin to read Plato again. And in Plato, as you know, there are sort of two strands. If you look at Plato's work, there are two different there are two different kinds of things that happen in Plato. There are things which he calls dialogues, that is dialectic. That is, you come in, and I, come in I come in and I ask you, what is the pious? And you said, the pious is this, you give a definition, and I dispute the definition. We talk about that. There's a dialectic. In the early Platonic dialogues, so the dialectic is a kind of proto-enlightenment, proto-analytic process. It's a process of trying to clarify concepts through discussion. However, in the early dialogues, all of these discussions lead nowhere. They never get a, they never get a definition of the a concept in, in, in question. Now, people in the 19th century begin to, begin to notice, however, that there's a whole other part of Plato's dialogues, which are the things which come to be called the myths. That is, a myth in Greek doesn't necessarily mean something that's false. It just means something that is said. Mythos just means what people say, where what people say is something that has, as it were, an indeterminate truth value. It's not true, it's not false. That's just what people say. That's what people say. Now, Plato hated that idea. He hated the idea that you could act just on the basis of what people say, and he thought you really have to subject what what they say to this kind of analysis. However, having done this analysis quite a lot, he finds he can't do away with the myths. So if you look at the Republic, for example, the Republic goes through nine and a half books of analysis of different concepts. Uh, it ends, however, not with a conceptual analysis, but with a myth. It ends with this myth the myth of so-called myth of error, etc. So people begin to think that there are these two components. There's analysis, there's this dialectical clarification of concepts, such as you find in the dialectic, and there's myth, where myth is a kind of narrative story that tells you something that you otherwise wouldn't know. And the idea then is really 
Some of them think, really, uh, the myths are more important than the dialectics, because the dialectic never goes anywhere. It never gets you anywhere. But the myth does. The myth tells you something. So OK, so we've got this revival of Plato. Now, in the 19th century, Two groups of people take different tacks here. The first one is Hegel and Marx, who, who say what you find in Plato is that's really important is the dialectic. But what's really important about the dialectic is to see that it's universal. And in itself, it never leads to the kind of definition you want. It's self-destructive. Therefore, what you do with the dialectic is you use the dialectic, you use conceptual analysis against itself. That conceptual analysis is, as it were, as Hegel says, the universal, the most important power in the world. But the most important thing about it is that it turns against itself. When Kant talks about reason turning against itself and destroying itself, He's, he's right on the money. And he, does, he only doesn't realize that that's a universal feature of this. So the, the, the first attempt is an attempt to get out of this by saying, don't have traditional concepts and definitions. Rather, focus and don't look for fixed definitions. Rather, focus on the movement of thought. And the movement of thought, you can construct a way of organizing the movement of, the, of thought so that the movement of thought is progressive. And although it's progressive, you can't reduce it to uh, any kind of resulting definition at the end, which satisfies all the conditions. So there's one line which says, let's go back to the Platonic dialectic, and, that's what we, and we'll turn this inside out. As I said in the first uh, thing, this comes to be associated with a certain kind of reformist political program, which fails in uh, 1848. Now, Marx draws from that the conclusion that uh, what this means is that the, di the dialectic fails uh, to be a reformist tactic. It has to be a revolutionary tactic. So that's one conclusion you can draw. So that's one way you can develop this. However, Nietzsche draws a different conclusion from this. And he draws this following a philosopher who's now relatively unknown named Schelling and his big friend Wagner. Schelling says, no, don't focus on the platonic dialectic. Look at the fact that what's really important in Plato are the myths. And there is, Schelling says, and Wagner then says this and takes it over, there is a kind of mythic thought which is non-discursive and non-analytic. It's a form of thinking which is a thinking which is not like dialectic in that it's not con connected with abstract concepts. It's not, it's not connected with uh, the idea of the good, or the idea of justice, or the idea of piety. It's not connected with, uh, with, with abstractions. It's connected with thinking through individual stories. So the myth, the, the paradigm of the myth is not the paradigm of how do you define justice. The, the paradigm of the myth is you tell a story about a certain concrete group of people and you tell it in such a way that the story is clearly a story about those individuals. It's not about the concept. It's about Odysseus, or it's about Oedipus, or it's about Siegfried, whoever is your person. You tell it. But you tell it in such a way 
that the telling of it expresses a certain kind of necessity, which is, however, a necessity that is not reducible to a set of abstract specifications of necessity. So the, so the myth is supposed to be a way of thinking that's both concrete, it talks about actual people, and yet, it's not merely historical. It doesn't just talk about accidental people and what happens to happen to them. It talks about uh, individualized people, but talks about them expressing what happens to them in terms of some kind of appropriateness or necessity which is not specifiable in strictly logical terms. So think about it. You, you have uh, a person, suppose someone you know is notoriously clumsy. They're just, they, do, they do various sorts of things. And then suddenly they come and they spill something. And now you tell the story of that. Now, it, it isn't the case, if you tell the story in the right way, it isn't the case that you, that you can say, well, it was predictable that he would spill that. But telling the story in the right way shows that, that that's the sort of thing that would happen to him. It wouldn't happen to me, it would happen to him. And so there's some notion of a kind of appropriateness or even necessity that connects events where that appropriateness and necessity is something which traditional logicians don't like. Namely, it's a kind of individual necessity. That is, that being the sort of person you are, that's the sort of thing that's going to happen to you either in the weak version, it's appropriate to happen to you, or it's the kind of thing that necessarily happens to you. So, so this is this. So Schelling gets this thing started, but it's really Wagner who gets this going. Uh, Wagner says, you know, operas shouldn't be historical. If you mean by so. Wagner hates Shakespeare's history plays. He thinks Shakespeare's history plays are the worst thing because Shakespeare's history plays take individual contingent events and talk about them. Rather, you have to take mythic formations such as uh, King Lear. King Lear is not a his history play in the sense of a proper history play. King Lear is a, 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 a drama in which you tell a story about a certain person, and the story is not a story that tells you what, as it were, had to happen, but what's the kind of thing that will happen again and again to this sort of person. So there's a kind of appropriateness or necessity connected with the individuality. And you can't say exactly, the best one is one in which you can't say exactly by virtue of what property it was that Lear had that he that this is a, the sort of thing that happens to him right so you you can describe him and if you describe him correctly you can see that there are certain things that are likely or appropriate to happen to him you can't say they had to happen to him and you also can't say by virtue of what it is that they happen to him why does Oedipus why does Oedipus kill Laios well is it accidental? Is it necessary? That's the kind of thing that will happen to a person like Oedipus on the road with a person like Laius. So Nietzsche's, as you know, the original book he writes, The, the Birth of Tragedy, is an attempt on a massive scale to rehabilitate mythical thinking as opposed to conceptual thinking. The big, big enemy in the first book is Socrates. And the idea is we have to get back to tragic myths. And these tragic myths are descriptions of necessary or appropriate connections that can't be specified in this way. Now, 
by the time he goes on to this, so there are three, so to think about this, there's what he might, he would call conceptual or abstract forms of thought, there's history, and there's myth. That's roughly speaking the threefold distinction he operates with. There are abstract conceptual things, uh, anyone who is pious will do this. That's a universal statement about what, if you are pious, you will have these properties, and if you have these properties, you will necessarily do this. It's abstract, it's conceptual. Then there's history, which is just one damn thing after the other. He did this, and then he did that, and then he did that, and then this happened, and then this happened. And myth is supposed to be something which has which is first not conceptual because it's not abstract. It doesn't tell you anyone who is pious does this. It tells you Odysseus did this, Aegisthus did this, Clytemnestra did this. It's individual. It's a narrative. It's not an analysis. It's a narrative. It's a story of a kind. And the story is held together by connections, which are not connections of logical implication, but connections of appropriateness. So it's, it's a myth. It's not a history. So, so, note. So the myth in, is supposed, so history is contingent, they think. Now, it, and, and myth is supposed to be a way of putting together a certain kind of individual contingency with a certain form of uh, appropriateness. So as you'll see, this book, The Genealogy of Morality, is constantly flipping back and forth between being presenting itself as a history that is emphasizing the complete contingency of what happens and presenting itself as a myth that is emphasizing the fact that it's not a complete contingency, that there's something appropriate. The slaves, it isn't the fact that the slaves just kill the masters. It's the fact that this, it's appropriate for the slaves to kill the masters. There's a kind of necessity there, but you can't specify that necessity in terms of antecedently given uh, concepts of any kind. So, 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 so that's why you can never tell in reading this book when he talks about slaves and masters and priests, whether he means a particular group of people historically specific form of people, or a mythic form of people. And he switches back between the two of them uh, uh, in a way that uh, you know, is controlled or, or uncontrolled. OK, so, uh, okay, so that's, that's the first thing I want to say about this. Now, what does his, um, what does his myth look? So, so what he says is to understand, and oh, further thing is, a myth then also is supposed to Instancia, it's supposed to have some kind, so it's supposed to be an individual story. It's not a conceptual story. But although it's an individual story, given that it's an individual story which talks about the appropriateness or necessity of connections, that story can be a template for other stories. It has a kind of universality in that what happens to Oedipus happens to you. That's the kind of thing that happens to you. So I can say this is an Oedipal uh, conflict talking about someone else. 
Now, what Nietzsche would say is to say that it's an eatable complex is to describe it mythically. That's not to be able to specify conceptually what the particular properties involved are that make this an eatable situation, but nevertheless to say it's not an accident. So these, these, these myths are supposed to be template, individual templates expressing a certain kind of necessity, which is not reducible to abstract necessity, and yet is movable, can be applied again and again. Again and again, there are slaves and there are masters. Uh, the, the myth is, uh, is, is movable somehow, but it's not abstract. That's, so that's what he's trying to do in the, in the, in the, in the, in the um, genealogy of morality. He's trying to, he's trying to, to uh, He's trying actually to realize this project which he describes in The uh, Birth of Tragedy, the earlier work in which he takes over from Wagner, of finding a mythical form of thinking that's superior and gives more understanding than uh, uh, abstract conceptual things or mere historical things. OK, now what is the myth? You know the myth is a myth which talks uh, in a quasi-historical way about three groups of people. Now, it's very important that there are two or three groups depending on how you count them. That is, again, given that you think there's a flexibility about the application of these things, you can count them as two groups or you can count them as three groups. And in some contexts, counting them as two groups is appropriate. In other contexts, counting them as three groups is appropriate. So Nietzsche says, the beginning of the myth is you've got powerful, a powerful group of people who are oppressing a weaker group of people. That's, as it were, the basic fact from which you start. You have a group of people who are not just as individuals strong, but have a kind of continuing relation. To speak of it as a relation of domination is to speak of it as a, a structured and continual relation in which one group of people exercises hegemony over other group of people. So you have, roughly speaking, masters and roughly speaking, slaves. The masters are a group of people who have power and uh, use that power. And the power consists in the power to oppress the slaves and extract from the slaves various kinds of services. Now, Nietzsche says, now think about what would be a natural or appropriate or even necessary form of thinking for people who are these masters. What would they, how would they think? How would they think about the world? Suppose you were born into a class of people that held itself to be inherently superior to everybody else and whose whole role in life was just to oppress other people. And suppose that. Now Nietzsche says, well, it's then appropriate for them to develop a certain kind of way of thinking about themselves and about the world. They will develop, it's not, un, it's, not, it's not implausible that they will develop what he calls a master morality. That is, they won't, right? People are not in general happy just to beat other people up. They also want to feel good about themselves beating other people up. They want, to, they want, they want, their, they want their action to be, to be fulfilling and, and happy and, and able to be described in a positive way and, and giving glory to God and doing whatever it is. They want to have some story that they tell about why they're beating these people up. 
And so Nietzsche says, and so it would be natural for the masters to use a certain concept, concept of what is good. And now it would be natural for them to think about the good, given their situation, in a particular kind of way. It would be natural for them to use good in a way that was split. It was both descriptive and evaluative at the same time. So it would be natural for them. So here we are. We are the masters. Uh, here we are at Cambridge. We're, we're the masters. And there are the slaves out there. And we're going to, and you know. And now how would, and so we would, it would be natural for us to describe what we have here, the life we live, as a good life. And in describing it as a good life, what we do is we pick up the college system and we talk about the college system. But we talk about the college system in such a way that we're not just describing it, but in describing it, we're picking out what makes it so wonderful. So the concept of good, he says, is, would naturally in such a set of circumstances be a term that the members of this group or class or whatever you want to call the members of this group use to describe their own way of life and in describing their own way of life to affirm their way of life. We live the best kind of life. Look at this. So when, when the Greek, uh, uh, when the Greek uh, members of the Greek aristocracies in the small towns in Asia Minor think about the gods, they, the gods lead the same kind of life they do, right? Because their life is the best kind of life. So as Nietzsche says, you know, to, what, what, what better way of saying that your way of life is the best life as to say is than, sorry, what is a better way of saying to the world that my way of life is the best life? What's better than to say, well, it's the way God lives too. You know, uh, I live in these little cities. We have these things. And the gods do the same thing. So, so that's the model. So the concept good, he says, in the case of these powerful members of the master class, is self-descriptive. It's self-affirming. It's a way in which they feel good about themselves. Uh, and, uh, it, uh, and that's its basic property. It's, it's a direct expression of their own power, a description and expression at the same time. So it's both a description of their state of affairs, it's, a, it's, a, it's an endorsement of their state of affairs, uh, and it's an, an attempt to make that state of affairs uh, uh, better in, in its own way. Okay. Now, and he says, and notice, it might also be the case that such people have a word for those who are not members of the of the, 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 the charmed group. So here we are sitting in Cambridge feasting on roast pork. And down there are the, are the, 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 the plebes, and they're eating mushrooms, or you know, or, 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 or you know, they're drinking, they're drink, we're drinking wine from Bordeaux from Trinity College's cellars, and they're drinking water from the cam. And you know, if you're really a, if you're a real good really good servant, you have a filter for your water from the cam. And otherwise you're scraping up mushrooms and lichen. And, and now he says, now you could see that when you have this concept of good, 
which describes the life we live, when you have that, you can observe that not everybody lives that life. They're lying down there drinking pond water, we're drinking wine. So I will have a word for that. He says, but the word for that will in general be a non-moralizing word. It will be a word that represents a failure or a, a lack of something. We are here, we are good, we are happy, we affirm ourselves in that. Unfortunately, there are some losers and that they're, they're there. So the people out there are not evil. They're not evil. Why would you think they were evil? They just have missed it. They're just, they're just, I mean, this wonderful American word, they're just losers. I mean, there's nothing, nothing worse, you know, in the United States to say, he's a, he's a loser. You know, they're, they're, they're inherent people who just, you know, the in, in, inherently non-tragic view of the world. They're just people who are losers. And that's just their nature. And they're always going to lose. And it's not surprising. And there's nothing you can do about it. And, you know, you should, you should, you know, you should avoid, you should certainly avoid them. Um, they're just losers. There's nothing morally reprehensible about that. They just don't have it. So, so, the, so the term good, roughly speaking, refers to the people who win the race. The term bad refers to the people who don't win the race. And as, uh, as Nietzsche then says, so there's nothing morally reprehensible. It's not your fault that you lost the race. You weren't as quick as us. We're just the quick bunnies. You're the slow pokes. Sorry about that. As he says, you remember, it might even be the case that there will be a certain kind of nostalgia associated with this, that if we're up here and we're not drinking wine, but we are, uh, we think of ourselves as predators. We're the vultures. We're the happy vultures. And they're the lambs down there, as he says. Well, the vultures are not angry with the lambs for being lambs. The vultures don't think the lambs should be vultures. The vultures will say to themselves, there's nothing as tasty as a good little lamb. But from the fact that there's nothing as tasty as a good little lamb, it doesn't follow that the lambs are leading our life. So, so, so that's the first thought. The first thought is you have this notion of good, which is positively defined through people who apply it to themselves, and in applying it to themselves, endorse their own lives. And then as a pale reflection of that, you have a word which represents the failure of some people to lead that life. Uh, so a number of things. One is it'll be a question of degree, right? You might win the race, but I might come second. Someone else might come third. So you have good and bad. And good and bad is, a, is not a dichotomous distinction. It's a gradual distinction. Good, better, best. You can have degrees. If life is a race and we come in first, you all come in first because you're at Cambridge, and some people come second, some people come third, some people come, if you think about it that way, there can be degrees of, there, there's the good and there's degrees of being bad. That's a different logic from the logic of good and evil. Logic of good and evil is it's good or it's evil. Tertium non datur. It's, it's, it's a dichotomous thing. So, so these, so, the, the first form of moralization is a form of moralization which describes the powerful, which is the terms in which the powerful describe their own power. And a pale reflection of that then, the second thought is, well, not everybody re reaches this degree, and they're to one, to one degree or another.
uh, deficient. Now, he says, and again, this is the point at which contingency enters. It might happen, he says, that within this group of people who are dominant and happy in enjoying themselves, they're happy and they affirm their self-affirmation. They're happy there. It might happen, he says, that within this group there turns out to be a slight split. Originally, roughly speaking, the people in this group were dominant in all areas of life. They had the best food, they had the best houses, they, they won all the prizes, they were the priests, they controlled communication with God, etc. So that's the original. But it might be that within that group there comes to be a functional differentiation into groups, into members of the group who think of their goodness and associate that more with what Nietzsche calls military virtues, with actually getting out there and cracking people's heads, with having battles, with winning battles, and people who think of their superiority in terms of priestly uh, uh, properties. The relations where, where priestly properties means uh, if, we're, um, if we're members of this special privileged group, of course, we want to approach the gods in a way that is clean. There's this very strong emphasis on cleanliness, restraint, not doing things that will upset the gods, etc. Originally, those two things are connected because it's part of the same group. Here's the group, we smash our enemies, and we control the relation to, to the gods, right? The, the poor plebs don't have any access to the gods. We have, we're the priests. But now they can have a s separation there. And now, uh, this is connected, I think, with, as you know, early Roman, in early Roman history, there are a lot of priests. Well, the, the priesthoods in the early Roman uh, Republic are restricted to members of the patricians. So this part of this has a kind of parallel in early Roman history that in the early period, uh, the, the, the priests play a very important role in Rome. You can't declare war, you can't do any sort of thing without the priests. They have a really important role. And the, uh, but you can only become a priest if you're a patrician, if you belong to this one of these uh, clans. Uh, it's a big revolution when some of the priesthoods are open to members of the plebs. So there are these, but, but what happens in Rome is that the priesthoods have associated with them a lot of taboos. Because if you go to see the God, to sacrifice to the God, you have to go to sacrifice to the God with clean hands because the God doesn't like you to be dirty, no blood, etc. So gradually you get associated with the priesthood a large number of taboos. For example, there was a famous priest called the Flamen Dialis, the priest of Ju Jupiter. He was not allowed to, his feet were not allowed to touch the ground. He was not allowed to see a dead body. He was not allowed to do various sorts of things. So the result of this was nobody wanted to be the priest of Zeus because if 
your access to power and status in Rome is getting an army and going out and fighting against the Gauls and killing a lot of Gauls. You couldn't go have an army and not see any corpses or not have your feet touch the ground. So you get a situation in which this priesthood, you can only get into the priesthood if you're a member of this particular clan. But the members of that clan, none of them want to be the priest of, of, of Jupiter because they'd rather go out smashing heads. So Nietzsche says, this is the archetype for this kind of separation. He says, so you can have a military part of the dominant class and a priestly part of the dominant class. The priestly part of the dominant class will be one that describes itself and what's good about its life, not in terms of exuberant shedding of blood, knocking people around, but in terms of cleanliness, ritual purity, self-restraint, etc. Now Nietzsche says it isn't surprising if you set it up that way. Remember, this is in a way a myth. It's supposed to be an informative myth, but it's a myth nonetheless. Now then he says it wouldn't be surprising if under those circumstances circumstances, the priests felt deprived and the uh, and the vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis the military people because the priests had entered into a project they might not have known it at the beginning they've entered into a project which are which is going to take them away from many of the characteristic pleasures by virtue of which the military people see their lives as being good. If, the, if, if your life is good, if you can go out and smash a lot of goals and come back and be victorious and have a, a triumph in the city and strangle the leader uh, on, uh, in the Compass Martius, uh, you can't do that if you're the priest. And if that's the, so as a priest, so going down the priestly line, you get sidelined. You're still, it's really important, you're still a member of this ruling class, but you're sidelined relative to the central line, which is this military line. Okay. So that's the first, they're the first two components, or the first one component in this project. Now, however, what about the plebes? What about the people who are the losers? The, 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 the people drinking filtered uh, a cam water down uh, down on Grantchester Meadow, who are uh, p p you know eating dandelions and and, and drinking pond water. Um, now, they of course have a certain perception of their own life. They'd be pretty foolish to think that was any good. I mean, they might think it was good, but they'd require a lot of mental gymnastics to think it's good. So antecedently, you won't necessarily think that a life like that is very good, especially if you see people up here on the heights of the world drinking wine and having nice, nice dinners. Um, so they won't, there'll be a kind of cognitive dissonance involved there. They will, they will not have at their disposal a language to describe themselves as active and winners. They have at their disposal for the first, in the first instance, the, the vocabulary of the masters. You remember Nietzsche says again and again, to give a name to something is Herrenrecht. To give a name for something is a right that the masters. The masters are the first name givers. That's a really important part of his thing. So the, the, the proletariat, the plebes, whoever it is down there, they have at their disposal this vocabulary but this is a vocabulary that can do nothing for them. The vocabulary really does nothing but reinforce to them something which should be obvious to them, namely that they've lost and they've got nothing going for them. They're the bad. 
Now, now comes the now comes the moment when Nietzsche says, which Nietzsche calls the slave revolt in morality. And Nietzsche says, but it can happen that in those circumstances, the members of the downtrodden group, the slaves or the plebes, imaginatively uh, engage in a constructive conceptual activity. They take the terms that the masters have elaborated, good and bad, and they think they, 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 get control, <clears throat> they get control of these terms and of the semantics of these terms. And by getting control of these terms and the semantics of these terms, they're able in imagination to turn the tables on the masters. So the idea is, given that they are oppressed physically and they're oppressed conceptually, as it were, this breeds a state which he calls resentiment, resentment, resentment against the masters. And now the slaves might feel resentment. They have no actual power to exercise resentment because they're poor and they're weak. So they can't emphasize, they can't do, a master who is insulted smacks his opponent. End of the story. Uh, a slave can't do that. The slaves are by themselves too weak. That's, the, that's part of the assumptions of the structure. They're too weak to do it. Either they can't do it at all, or they know that if they do it, they'll just get smashed. Uh, right? You remember the famous story about Voltaire. Voltaire insults the Duke of Rohan, and the Duke of Rohan has four of his servants beat Voltaire up in the streets. Uh, and everybody in Paris takes the side of the Duke of Rohan because, of course, he's the Duke of Rohan. And so, uh, so, so the slaves are too weak to get direct revenge. So they invent an imaginary form of revenge, which is taking the concept of the good which the masters have, taking the content of that concept, and changing the evaluation of it. So the masters describe a certain kind of life and endorse it. In describing it, they endorse it. They say it's a good life. The slaves engage in this complicated task of separating, as it were, the, the descriptive content of this good life from the evaluation of the good life and changing the evaluation. So exactly the life that the masters describe as their own good life, exactly that life is taken by the slaves and described as not a good life. And for this, they then invent a new term, evil, an evil life. They change the, the Vorzeichen. They change the, um, uh, they change, uh, you know, positive and negative in front of something. The, the, what is that called? Uh, coefficient, is that what it's called? Anyway, they change the positive, from positive five to negative five. Five is the same absolute magnitude. Is it just positive or negative? And now Nietzsche says, and that is their creative moment. They basically uh, uh, generate a new form of valuation by taking the existing description 
and changing the evaluation on it from positive to negative. Then, having done that, that is creating the concept of evil, they create another concept which is the reverse of evil, which is good, which is themselves. So the structure is the, the masters have good, and then there are these people who are not good, they're bad. The slaves take good, define it as evil, and then they say they are not evil. So, so the masters begin, Nietzsche says, with self-affirmation and with a description of their own lives, which is self-affirmative, and then they describe fallings off from that. They start from the positive. They then go to the negative. The slaves do the other way around. They see, they don't, the, the masters see the life they love. That's the life they're living. The slaves see the life they hate. That's the life of the masters who are fiddling around with them. They take that life and cast a curse on it, roughly speaking. They curse it. So their basic act is a negative act of negating the other, rather than a positive act of affirming themselves. The masters affirm themselves and say, well, sorry, boy, you can't do this. You're just a loser. The slaves say, you are evil. You are evil. <clears throat> Taking as the content of that term exactly what the masters called good. Then, having created the concept of evil, they have a kind of back formation. And they say, you are evil, but look at us. We don't lead that kind of life. We're not evil. We're good. So good comes to be ambiguous. It comes to be, first, a positive form of the self-description and self-affirmation of a group of people who see in it its own, his own power, and then some people who fail that. And it comes to mean those who are not evil, where evil means exactly what they call good. So if that is the origin, it's not surprising that you don't have a co- if, and, and so somehow the history of the West, Nietzsche says, is a history of a struggle between these two ways of defining good and bad, good and evil. If that's the case, it's not surprising that the concept, oh dear, I'm full, I've, I've, it's not surprising that the concept is not univocal. I'm really sorry about this. I've lost, um, I, I'm sorry, I, I lost track of the time. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I have to stop. I, I'm good, I, I, was, I, I won't leave this. Uh, I haven't actually finished it, um, but so I'll, I'll start this again next week. I mean, I'll, we'll start it again next week. I'll go on with it a little bit next week and, and then we'll go. I'm sorry, I can't, break the lectures up into bite-sized pieces because that's not the way my mind works. So, okay.